0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday. I hope the week is treating you well. Today, we are in for a treat because I have my dear friend, Laura Lee, here to talk with us. Laura Lee is a certified holistic chef and heartache consultant with over 10 years in the wellness industry. After a divorce and several subsequent breakups, Laura Lee decided to combine her food knowledge with scientific theories on attachment, grief, and romantic rejection to create a private consulting program and body of digital resources. Laura Lee has also centered her third cookbook around the relationship between food, mindset, and healing during difficult seasons. This book, Recipes for an Aching Heart, is now out in stores and online. It is beautiful. It is so cool. The recipes are incredible. Laura Lee, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I am so honored and so happy to be connecting with you.
0: I am so excited because I feel like this is like people getting to sit in on our lunch dates and <laughs> like hear what we've been doing, you know, just kind of be in on that conversation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your story, like where you started, why heartache?
1: Yes. Oh my goodness. So, just backtracking about 11 years now, I went to a specialized culinary school after five years in New York City where I was incredibly anxious and also probably depressed. Now, looking back, I got the clinical diagnosis for the anxiety, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there was some depression as well. And that catalyzed my first like 180, which was deciding to scrap the whole lawyer trajectory and go to culinary school. And I became a certified holistic chef, moved back to Nashville and spent the majority of the last 10 years really focused on my career as a holistic chef. And, you know, I loved it. I sort of did the spaghetti tactic, throwing everything against the wall. And I feel like the one through line was the recipe creation and trying to bridge the gap between what people think of as healthy food and what is realistic and and also just a lot of demystifying and you know the getting away from the diet and the dogma and that was wonderful and i feel like my first two cookbooks were very aligned in that way but like for many people in 2020 just so much change. I think I had, I had the humbling experience of realizing just how expensive my recipes were. Um, but I think at that point, I, I know, I know I was like making $30 cashew cheese, which for for a lot of people, it's great. And they still make those recipes. And if they're dairy intolerant, that's fantastic. But I think that combined with what was happening in my personal life really started to shift me away from being as passionate about food and more passionate about mental health, kind of coming full circle back to why I got into it in the first place. <laughs> so I had gone through a divorce in 2018, and then in 2021, the end of you know my, my full kind of lockdown year... I left my ex boyfriend's house in a snowstorm in the middle of the night. And I woke up the next morning and said that basically whatever I've been doing is not working because I had been trying to keep my personal pain separate from the food stuff. I was just trying to go mm-hmm. like full steam ahead. But behind the scenes, I actually was developing a really unhealthy relationship with not just food, but with my life, with everything. I was, it was very disingenuous. And uh, I decided to start to really understand what was actually happening in my body after grief, particularly the romantic kind, because it was so clear that I had mistaken knowing that my divorce was the right thing for me with thinking I was healed from it. You know, I got those two conflated and it turns out that even if you are the one who initiates a separation or a breakup, it doesn't mean you don't need healing. So I started studying the science of grief and reading up on all these different theories. I worked with a coach who offered me one tool, which was fantastic, but I really wanted to expand on that. And I was basically my own guinea pig. And actually, Sarah Jane, you're the first person that I'll share this with. Uh, but my mm-hmm. in my current relationship, we took six weeks apart. And mm-hmm. even though it was excruciating, it actually allowed me to, it wasn't it, it was not intentional, but um, or I guess was, I should say it was unwanted, but it, it allowed me to really put all of these tools to use. And mm-hmm. at about the six-week mark, I felt like the healthiest, happiest version of myself. That I had felt mm-hmm. in the greater part of the decade, and that was when mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to really start to shift away from just food exclusively and start to help other women going through that
0: yeah oh. it's so it's so interesting to think about you know kind of having these you know you're kind of talking through three different you know breakups and different forms and different intensities, but how you have been able to like watch yourself respond to those over the years in different ways? Um, I know people at home are probably like, okay, but I hear you saying you had tools. What are the tools? Help
1: me out. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry. for sure. Well, what was what's interesting is I think because of my food background, I kind of thought oh, that man. was like going to be my shtick, sort of the the yeah. the key the the thing that would set me apart and i i do think it it sort of makes my coaching a little bit different but the reality is when someone comes to me and they're incredibly dysregulated which for people listening what that usually looks like i would say i typically work with women who identify as an anxious attachment style mm-hmm. and they even their their posture the way they hold themselves is very like hunched over there's this mm-hmm. kind of frenetic energy i call it being like on fire they're sort of on fire and they are talking really quickly, and they're what in what Elizabeth Kubler Ross would say would be that sort of initial kind of um, really it's it's kind of a protest stage of grief. And I also love the work of Dr. Helen Fisher, and she talks about this protest stage. And when they come to me, they do typically need a bit of technical support when it comes to food lifestyle changes because. I would not recommend the same food to the same healthy food to someone who's very regulated that I would offer as healthy food to someone who's dysregulated, if that makes sense. So we stay away from a lot of like raw veggies, a lot of fiber, a lot of, uh, you know, acidic foods, spicy foods. But after that, Sarah Jane, honestly, most of it comes from the mindset tools. So I would say Mm -hmm. the biggest tools that I combine are one attachment style, I'm really, really interested. I I honestly didn't realize how much that was going to factor in. And I think very much like the Enneagram for me, it's uh, what I, what I say on the outset is this isn't like your identity. It's not who you are. Um, And it's malleable, but it is an incredibly helpful tool because it's going to help you understand what I call your relationship blueprint. And really, it gets to the root of the number one question that people circulate in their minds after a breakup, which is why, 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 why? And we can understand a lot of that why. And then we kind of leave why in the dust because then it doesn't actually have as much of a place as we think that it does. Um, But attachment style. And then the work of a woman named Pia Melody. She was an addiction specialist who wrote Facing Codependence. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Mm -hmm. But she has a chart in Facing Codependence that's one of the templates that I use for my clients to basically teach them how to rewire their thoughts. And Mm -hmm. I I do require my clients to be able to dedicate about 15 to 20 minutes of work every single day because we create that brain change through the repetition and the consistency. Mm -hmm. So... I would say, you know, in terms of understanding the stages of grief, I combine Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Dr. Helen Fisher's work. I pull in a lot from attachment theory and then a lot from Pia Melody. And then it's, then we just customize it person to person.
0: Well, I think that's the magic of working with someone one-on-one, right? Is like having that. I think so often we miss the value of just having someone hold space for you. I feel like So often, and especially if you have a personality type that's maybe maybe more toward the codependent in, and you're like, I'm the one who's needed, I don't have to rely on other people. Um, That having someone just sit with you, hold space, ask the right questions, give you these tools, um, I feel like it's invaluable. And I want to, yeah, I want to say too. Like I wrote down in my notes that um, (laughs) that I wrote, like I love when women get divorced. Like I it's like, I'm thinking of it from this lens of like when someone tells me they get divorced or they're good you know they've ended a relationship, I'm like, congratulations, um, but I'm hearing you talk through like, no, this is grief, Sarah Jane, like this is a a a painful place, um, and I often i think forget almost or like feel detached from that because. A divorce was so good for me that mm-hmm. I want that for, I want like that liberation for everybody. But at the same time, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a whole grief
1: process that you have to go through. So, I mean, the, you know, you're not wrong. I, or I guess I should say, I agree with you. And I think what happens in the course of the work that I do is I wouldn't congratulate someone in my first session with them, but by the end of our six sessions together, and we do three back-to-back once per week and then every other week, and then some of them stay on for for really what you're talking about, sort of that just wanting the one-on-one connection and support, but by the end, they do come to see that this was the best thing that ever happened to them, whether they initiated it or not. So in that way, I, I agree. And I actually remember hearing this amazing woman named Tyce Gibson. I love her YouTube channel, The Personal Development School, say that going through a breakup was a really magical time. And I, I kind of heard it kicking and screaming at, at the time. But she's yeah. she's right. It's true. It can, if you have the, the right support, and again, if you have the right tools, It really can be a magical experience. And what my clients come to see too is that they're white knuckle, willpowering, death gripping a life that ultimately, if we just project down a little bit further and we rewire some of these paradigms, this lens that they're seeing the world through and they're seeing relationships through, it's never a question of what's a better alternative. You know, I mean, the biggest, again, because I work with women who are typically anxiously attached for them at the top of their hierarchy of need when they come to me is co-regulation, whether that's with someone who's a safe person or not. And once they understand how to self-regulate and that just because you're co-regulating doesn't mean you're safe, they can start to have that celebratory feeling. But the other thing that's that's interesting because I know you is that you are someone who I would say is secure and probably leans avoidant. And so it doesn't surprise me that that would be your kind of initial <laughs> um, about it, right? You know, and it's so funny, because I've probably worked with like 45 women at this point, two of them are avoidant. And it's been really fun for me to learn more about that perspective, because I can help them. It's just the vast majority of people who come to me looking for help are going to have that anxious brain. So for you, you're such you're so adept and skilled at self regulation. And that's, your safe space that for you to, and the core wound of an avoidant person is entrapment. And I'll be honest, I have some of that myself, but I'm fearful avoidant. So I can kind of see both sides, but it doesn't surprise me at all that that would, that that would be a very, that's a very understandable perspective that you would have.
0: That's so funny. I do think that's true. And I also like, I think it makes sense that you would work primarily with anxious types because it would feel like avoidance. We may not even know we need help. You know, mm. we might not even realize because we think I'm good. I'm good on my own. Like, You might not realize like how much relationships can contribute to your life if you're not allowing it to impact you or like letting it uh, influence you, which I think was really hard for me for a long time
1: yeah I mean, that makes that makes so much sense. and I think um, I think it was a woman named Heidi Preeb. I always try to give credit where it's due. I believe that she offered this perspective, which is the worldview for someone like you who, and again, I, I would wager that you really are mostly in that secure but leaning avoidant camp rather than dismissive avoidant, hardcore. But your worldview is, I'm okay, you're not okay. Whereas the anxious worldview is I'm not okay the other is okay. And the secure Mm -hmm. worldview is I'm okay. And you're okay. Which I, again, I really think is where you are primarily. Um, but with that perspective, it helps you understand why that would feel this sort of desperate need to merge your identity with the wants and needs and desires of another person and why that can be so hard to extricate, you know? Yeah, if
0: you are in that space where you have like merged your identity and then you're stepping out, I mean in your I mean I can't imagine that feeling of feeling like you're like it feels like a tearing.
1: Yes, actually it feels quite life-threatening, but for someone who is avoidant, it feels life-threatening to lose their identity and to have their boundaries breached because typically they didn't get the message that their boundaries were respected. And so they had to create solid boundaries. And often for an avoidant person, that looks more like a wall than a boundary. And so for them, that is going that sort of Having that wall broken down is what feels almost life-threatening on a subconscious childlike level to an avoidant person, whereas it is quite life-threatening to an anxious person to be un- what they view as sort of untethered in the world.
0: Ooh. So if you're in an anxious state and you've, you know, you've stepped out um, and you're like, okay, week one, we're in the thick of it. We're in the throes of it. Um is there like a word of comfort or wisdom that you like to share like if someone's listening right now and they're like yeah I'm tearing I'm like right now I'm in the midst of it I'm in I'm, it's happening um what would you hope for them to know right now
1: mm. Yeah I would say honestly the biggest sentiment that I would offer is actually around the experience of incredible guilt and self-blame and shame that the majority of my anxious clients are navigating, even though it's scary to be on their own, the, the suffering, I would say, primarily manifests as this sense of I'm on my own because somehow, even though by definition, relationships are a two-way street, somehow this is my fault. And I have now threatened my own life on this deep level and I am now out thrown to the wolves because I did something or I didn't do something I mean truly the number one thought I hear from all of my anxious clients like right at the outset is but it what if I just want one more chance because if I had just done this one thing or if I hadn't done this one thing I wouldn't be in this situation and there's I mean there's a couple things I would want to offer but one would be what I what I just said which is that mm-hmm. We are conditioned, regardless of your attachment style, but when you combine anxious plus this paradigm that women are indoctrinated into, that in relationships, we bear the the brunt of whatever the emotional climate of the relationship is, that's our responsibility. What I say to them is the only difference between what you're feeling and someone who we all know, someone who takes no responsibility for anything, right? We all know those people. The only Mm -hmm. difference between you and them is a lens. It's not your identity. It's not who you are. By definition, this cannot be your fault because guess what? In a world of 8 billion people, you and I both know that there's plenty of people who the things that you're saying you should or shouldn't have done, it wouldn't have been a problem for them, right? It wouldn't have been a deal breaker for everyone. So there's not some formula where you're bad or wrong because you did or didn't do those things. Mm -hmm. You're just not compatible Mm -hmm. with a person. I actually had a client reach out to me panicking over email, and she said, and this is very common, she said, I think I'm just really hard to love. Mm-hmm. And she, she, I know, it's, it's gut-wrenching, mm-hmm. and I'm sure if anyone anxious is listening, they're probably feeling that. And um, what I said to her, because she knows I, I have a boyfriend, we you know, and, and we got back together, that's a whole separate thing, but I said to her, I am hard to love sometimes. Everyone is hard to love sometimes, and I'm also really easy to love sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm only interested in someone who wants all of me, when it's hard and when it's easy. And if it's and if it if it breaches a boundary of theirs, if it doesn't meet a need of theirs, that's okay. But there's not some faulty equation where it then takes it doesn't dock points for me just because we're not compatible. Everyone is hard to love. What really happens is we think we're quote, especially hard to love, right? Like I'm the special yeah. snowflake, but everyone thinks yeah. that.
0: Yeah. I'm so interested. Cause do you find that people, because when you say, when I hear you saying this, like I'm hard to love, I imagine someone kind of like shape-shifting, controlling themselves, trying to be smaller, trying to like hide the truth of who they are, um, changing their personality to like, just try to keep someone there. Mm-hmm. And, I wonder like how much suffering we create by like by gripping our way through a relationship, like trying so hard to hold on to a relationship, it almost feels like you're creating more suffering than just kind of going through the grief process. It's like avoiding the grief
1: is more painful than experiencing the grief. Absolutely. Does that Yes, I think that's so well said, for sure. And one of the things that one of my big jobs, most important roles is to help them separate the grief that we are more than capable of from the suffering, uh, because what happens is when we have that self-blame and shame and guilt lens all of the moments in the, in the actual relationship where we resolutely heard our intuition saying, I'm not safe. This isn't healthy. I'm not happy. I'm not seen. Think of like the guilt is literally like an eclipse that covers that intuition. And so my job is to clear out the guilt and the shame, which is the suffering, so mm-hmm. that they can remember That at the end of the day, when we project down the road and you think you've gotten the pot of gold, they think the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is one more chance to be some version, like you said, like to twist themselves into a pretzel. And aha, then I made it work because I twisted myself into just the right shape for that person. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we have to go there and I say to them, okay, let's say you are that pretzel. You figured out the magical formula to get this person back and to keep them. But in this fantasy, they're not a different person. They're just responding to you walking on eggshells and twisting yourself into a pretzel. What does that look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years? If you're a parent, which a lot of them want to be, what does that actually look like? What does it feel like for you to... And obviously, we do this all safely with their body. They, all, My clients all have to work with therapists as well. So we always check in with what's happening in their body. But if you go to that place down the road and you really ask yourself... Do I want to spend the life, spend the rest of my life being the catalyst for someone treating me well, being the reason mm. because of what I did? What does that actually feel like to bear the burden of that for the rest of your life?
0: And it's so it's so painful to think about that because it is it's like love being that conditional and that losable, um, based off of if you're you know, kind of controlling yourself well enough that day. Um, we, I just don't think that's a love we'd want. Cause it's no. not, I mean, it's not love, right? Like that's, it's like put up, it's like just someone putting up with you, Absolutely. which isn't what anyone deserves.
1: Absolutely. Damn. I would imagine that this is a, a tool that you use in some form with, with the, all different facets of the work that you do, but it's like we need to teach our brains to complete the thought and to actually finish the trajectory because we start with the thing that feels like it's going to give us the dopamine hit in the moment but when you actually play that what happens like and i talk a lot about going deep if you're going to start down the rabbit hole you have to complete the rabbit hole because it's not that. it's never as scary as it looks at the end of the at the end of the rabbit hole when it comes to being single. And it's always far scarier than it looks when we complete the rabbit hole, what it looks like to stay with this person. Mm.
0: So when someone comes to you, you're like, okay, we're in the thick of grief. We're going through it. We're going to walk through these steps. How do you, like, what's your wish for them toward the end? Like, how do you hope to see them step away?
1: Yes. So I would say... About how so first, what we want to do is just give them some like acute relief because there's not much else we can do until we until we start to clear out some of the mind clutter. But about halfway through the sessions, we start to focus on what is this void that has been in their life. Often it was there before, and then a person just filled the void. How do we take that void and how do we use that? Use this material, this sort of empty space, to start to cultivate your sort of dream life and to become the most. Robust, um, authentic—I ver- mean, that's such an overused word, but I think it's the right word in this context. The most you, you, some of them can recall some of that, and I actually—if they can't—we have tools to help them to help them get to know themselves, and we start to create this really wonderful life that feels very full. Now, a lot of them say, "Well, you know, I'd still rather do these things with a person," or "I'm still lonely." But the reality is, and Sarah Jane, I'm sure you can speak to this there is nothing lonelier than the loneliness of a bad marriage or a bad relationship, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, Anyway, that's kind of an aside, but but that's one of the biggest things I hear as we start to create this. Mm-hmm. Their, their brains are kind of fighting it, just saying, but I wish it was a person, but I wish it was a person. And yet after mm-hmm. several weeks of them starting to fill their own cup, and very much I think like you and I both have done for different reasons over the years, you and I both have mm-hmm. have a really good sense of what we enjoy. Um, we plan our lives, I think, probably more than people would think. We plan leisure. We plan fun. Mm-hmm. We plan joy. And so- yeah. And that's this, I guess, the seven and me that I'm uncovering. But, uh, but that's a lot of what we do. And then that kind of takes them to the very end, where if they have no desire for a relationship or kids or whatever, that's fantastic. Or if they want it, that's fantastic. But typically, I'm going to say, I mean, honestly, I haven't had a client who hasn't wanted a, another serious relationship. So then what we do is we spend the last couple of sessions really figuring out what they're looking for in such specific, obnoxious, tedious detail that I'm driving them crazy. <laughs> but it is, it's really, really important, especially if you're coming from that sort of anxious paradigm. But that's kind of how we wrap it up.
0: Yeah, I love that because I do think like if you are coming from that kind of anxious place, it would be so easy to build up your sense of self, build a, build a life that's so beautiful. And then, you know, someone feels like they're giving you the affection or the, the hope of love that you're craving or that sense of like connection to just kind of go, okay, well, that was all for me while I was single. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to enter into this new relationship and all of that. just going to go out the window Um, Mm -hmm. versus I know what I want. I know what I'm looking for. I'm going to be conscious about choosing that person rather than like,
1: you know, so that I can hold
0: both. I can hold this part of myself while entering into a new dynamic.
1: Yes, totally. And we really focus on – the difference between wants, needs, and boundaries, how to express those. Um, And typically, I would say if I do see clients afterwards, actually, my two clients this morning, they booked sessions as they started to get into the dating process because there was a lot of mind drama around that. Mm -hmm. And so I do help them make sure there's always going to be a bit of course correcting. We get we're going to get activated again, especially when those initial neurotransmitters come in and you're feeling all the good feels. Um, but I do help them. I, I do help them with that stage. And honestly, typically it's so easy for them to see the difference. The The, the more time they put into that work on their own. Mm-hmm. And I do give them that, that homework, the easier it is for them to start to really see it almost as a numbers game and to learn to speak up for themselves and to see the merit and in, you know, setting those boundaries and all that good stuff.
0: Mm. So, um, Anything lingering for you that you're like, I hope we don't leave today without me getting to share this or say this um, Mm
1: -hmm. for people at home? I mean, no, I would just say, um, you know, I, I would just say that I would love to connect with you if that's something that you're struggling with. But I think the most important thing that we need to keep in mind is that, again, all of this stuff, all of these things that feel like they are, like again, I'm not talking about clinically life threatening, but life threatening to our nervous systems, life threatening to our happiness, the way that we see the world. It is so important that we understand that it is literally like a pair of goggles or glasses that we are wearing. And that we have the power to shift out of that. Because if you don't, you will feel suffocated and you will continue to stay in these patterns. And none of it is your fault. Whoever is listening, whatever you've been through, the way someone treats you, It is true that we do want to do the work, again, to set boundaries and to speak up for ourselves. But someone who is unkind is unkind across the board. You can't make them be unkind and you can't make them be kind. It is not your fault how someone treats you. So I would say those are big takeaways. Yeah, that's so good.
0: And friends, don't forget to grab Laura Lee's new book, Recipes for an Aching Heart. It's so good. The recipes are so comforting, whether you're in heartache or not, they're, they're lovely. And Laura Lee, it's just such a joy to have you. So good to spend time with you.
1: Thank you. This meant so much to me. I loved it. Seeking the truth never gets old.